sound like to you? For me, it's ominous. It's foreboding. Exactly like a storm approaching. It's like the static field in front of a hurricane, rolling in ahead of it, warning all the birds. Something is about to happen here. Welcome to the 525 Records Podcast. show you how to do a lone star style today that was one of the best bands to ever come out of austin texas that was the haunted amps their legendary 2010 uh, album they live tracked in east austin sometimes the best records happen in the shortest amount of time it's just a fact because they're most often the most prepared usually a corollary however my guest today none other than Mr. Seth Gibson, you heard him play bass on that song, and I'm happy as heck to have him on the podcast today. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed making it. So here he is, Seth Gibson. And you don't have a clue how my friends get through to you. No, you don't have a clue. 
fucking clue why they stick to the porch like some kind of glue. I think I want to start with Cha's awesome collection of vinyl. We were just pawing through it. Let's just name some of those vintage vinyls that are in there. Well, Eric B. and Rakim. Rakim. Uh, Grand Pooba. Yeah. I mean, she is a cool huge hip-hop and rap collection. I had no idea. You know, they have an impressive collection of vinyl. If you've, it, you know, people out there that are into vinyl, you see a wall of vinyl, you know right away you're looking at some serious stuff. Yeah. It's a collection you won't find in anybody else's house that isn't a DJ. Pretty much, you know. Well, we were both collectors, and that was one of the things that I think uh, solidified. Tell me, the there's deal. a vintage Tribe Called Quest record in there somewhere. Yeah, there's like five or six. Of you them. got a vintage Lawn Theory? Yes. Oh my God! Yeah, every one of them is, you know, original. It's yeah. impressive. It really is. It's the most awesome collection of hip hop. It was pretty much like when where my collection ended, hers began, and then they like combined it's just amazing the amount of awesome people that she's met i mean how did what how did she meet all these people um she grew up in new jersey and new york and her older brother and sister are like five to six years older than her and so she at first was tagging along to a ton of dance hall and reggae shows and early hip-hop shows like um, That's what's so impressive about her collection. She auditioned for Bad Brains. No way. Yeah. How the fuck did that happen? It was an open audition. Get out of here, tell me. Yeah, she fucking went up and... Uh, I, I mean, you have to interview what her. What were they for auditioning the for? The singer? singer? yeah. Wow. HR. Yeah. Anyway. I mean, she's a ton of stories like that. So when I first met her, I was super intimidated. I was DFW. like, there's no way. You know so many, you've got so many name drop stories that it's a fucking You almost don't believe it's true, but then when you find out it is true, you're like, wow, that's yeah. impressive. But yeah. Totally. Like hanging out with the Beastie Boys yeah. at shows where they're going to see the artist as well. Yeah. You know, just shit like that. So anyway, yeah. It's like, yeah. She's, she's awesome. Yeah. Let's talk about the Haunted Amps. Okay. Cesar. Yeah. Cesar Aguilar. Yeah. He um, was a mutual friend, again, through Cha. What Cha's, was it like the first time you guys got in a room and played together? The first time we didn't play together, the first time I engineered a show for them. When they started out, they were called Spectre in a Cab. I remember that. And that was a two-piece band. The Haunted Amps would go on to comprise Cesar on vocals and guitar, Seth on bass, and Justin on the drums. And Cesar were in a two-piece, guitar and drums, and... One of the best drummers ever. And somehow he figured that I was uh, going to school for engineering and invited me to, you know, engineer their show. And I did, and... Um, Right after the show, pretty much immediately, he said, you know, would you be interested in playing bass in the band? I said, of course, I'd love to. Because and then you had to learn about, what, 30 songs or something? Yeah. Well, I had just moved down there and yeah. left, like, my best friends and the senators, you know, and that was heartbreaking um, for me. And But I was wanting to play music really badly. 
And, uh, yeah, I had to learn a ton of songs for them. And then we started writing. Like, shortly after I joined the band, Beto said, you know, he was going to school, and he's like, I don't have time to be in the band anymore. And so for a good seven months, it was me and Cesar just... He was he's pretty, he was pretty much a fledgling songwriter. He had that enthusiasm and excitement of a newborn songwriter. I'm fascinated by him. Like, wh- when did he pick up guitar? Recent, prior to that record, or? And like 30 years old or something. I mean, like two, Those were all two years songs. prior to the record yeah. that we recorded, um, Saboteur Lost Did he have a day job in Austin? He is actually, had a reputation. He was... Uh, the bar manager at a ton of super popular Austin bars. Whistler's on East uh, Chicon and 7th. Um, he pretty much like the artistic bartender scene where they're, you know, making all their own backers and uh, like you go in there for a $15 cocktail and it blows your fucking mind. Like he engineered all that stuff. And so he, that was his deal. He was a bar manager and bartender. And just to bring people up to speed at home, for those who don't know, in 2010, you guys went and you tracked one of the greatest records ever recorded, Saboteur Lost at Sea. Yeah. That was, that was a pretty epic experience. We tracked that all in East Austin, right across the street from the Scoot Inn, which is... If you've ever been to Austin, a notorious uh, venue. It's a fucking dive. But they have an awesome outdoor stage. I saw the Butthole Surfers play there on New Year's Eve, and they fucking killed it. And the whole... I mean, so it was kind of a smaller room, but... um, sound is good. The sound was great. A mere 46 seconds of what is a six-minute song. It's kind of staged like a classical theater production, right? Three acts. You have the opening, the middle, the end. The middle is this beautiful, just sonic explosion. One of two that they do on the record for like a prolonged length of time. It then, you know, builds again, and they all just... It's like this spectacular crescendo when they come out of it. That It's just like catching a wave, and then it just just explodes into this brilliant up-tempo feel i'd play the whole thing for you but it's six minutes long and the idea here is to tease you enough to go out and look it up because it's about as underground as underground gets at this point that's one of my favorite cuts i'll give you another little sample of uh my other favorite cut here it is and if heaven is what we're yearning for then i'm a voyager of the cosmic sea I'm giving up on sanity I even 
once again, uh, just a small subset of what is a much larger, longer song. However, how good are those lyrics? You know, I've given up on sanity. I've even forsook his name. Now ghosts surround my heart and God is an eagle in flames. We tracked to tape and then dumped the tape into Nuendo or Innuendo. I can't remember what you guys live tracked almost all that record. It seems like we live tracked the entire thing. And how many takes per song were you guys running? Three takes, five takes? No, one take and then two, maybe two. And what about, was that a scratch vocal with a vocal overdub? It was scratch vocals, and then we got the drums and bass tracks and rhythm guitar tracks. So it was literal live recording. The only thing we overdubbed was additional guitar and vocals. And just to bring people up to speed, uh, Seth Gibson, the guest on the 525 Records podcast today, played bass in The Haunted Amps in Austin, Texas. And uh, yeah, you got to look that record up. It's a... That was my second band I ever played bass in. Well, I kind of joined two bands simultaneously in Austin. One was Chicken Shift and one was the Haunted Amps. And somehow I ended up playing bass for in Portland for a band called The Smokes. And that kind of... Mentioned on the previous episode. For Somehow for 10 years I got lost and became a bass player <laughs> for other bands. But that was fine. I really enjoyed it. I mean, I learned a lot. Personally, the thought of you as anything other than a frontman is just, it's tragic. But the one exception is your bass playing in the Haunted Amps, I think. Dude. So when did you, when did the Haunted Amps go Splitsville? What year was it? The I drummer left. You tell me. We went through a couple of drummers. You said 2010. That was the record, June so of 2010, yeah. We recorded, Beto left, and so Spectre in the Cab was no more. And then it was Cesar and me just playing music and practicing. And he came up with this group of songs that he it was pretty much formulated for an album he knew what he wanted on the album finished no more lyrics needed no the lyrics were done the songs we we completed and arranged and a lot of those bass parts i wrote on my porch just listening on my iphone to his uh his demos and i wrote them on a nylon string guitar just composing them and then Whenever we would rehearse, I'd translate it onto a bass guitar, and then it would go from there. Where so did you guys pretty much yeah. the guitar and the bass were already completed by the time we found a drummer to record the record with. So like the song, the record was pretty much formulated, and then it got even better once uh, Justin Swite got involved. Some epic drumming. Yeah. And what he, were his former bands? I don't know his former bands, but he did a solo project called Xander Harris. It's kind of like horror, electronic horror stuff. He actually did a brief West Coast tour. He, some, some obscure label, label signed him, which is one of the reasons we lost him as a drummer. Oh, he's too good. For some reason, and I wish we could go back in time and close mic the toms, but for some reason we decided just to do room mic, uh, 57 on the snare, and mic the kick and uh, EQ it from there. In hindsight, I wish we had close mic'd the toms more because there's so many good fills in there that are kind of, it's hard to dig through that high end that we captured through the overheads. Um, But I mean, yeah, the performance was amazing. But that's why the guitar sits so well, I think. Cesar's voice, I would, what would you call it? I wouldn't call it like a baritone, but it's, 
you know. I call it crooning. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's it's fucking, the lyrics that it's matter. It's brilliant it's crooning brilliant. with amazing lyrics. Poetry. Absolute poetry. Mm. Without a doubt. Where is he today? What is he doing? Um, I just wished him happy birthday the other day on Facebook. Yeah. Is he still in Austin? He's still in Austin. He decided to get out of the service industry as well. Oh, yeah. I feel that. I think he's doing some kind of sales job, but well, that's he's, still, service. he's still playing guitar. We tried a couple times to continue playing together. Isn't it funny how inspiration sort of, like, it hits at once in this big flash? Here's the deal, man. That record was so fucking great. Confluence. In my opinion, that record was all fucking awesome. Rivers and, converging. And, uh... We were so stoked. We burned CDs and were ready to play shows and sell CDs. And uh, then the drummer quit. Justin quit. Tried to replace him. It ain't going to happen. Well, we did. And the next drummer held it down and was just as good. I mean, but then we started writing new stuff that we'd never got. We never recorded. We had probably four or five. I don't know, half a dozen more songs that we were writing with the new drummer that never got recorded. And then right as we were excited that, okay, now we can play shows and sell the album and write new material, then he decides he's moving to Hood River, Oregon. So we lost a third drummer. It was fucking drummers, man. Yeah, I mean, always. it's always the drummer, It right? makes you want to become a drummer because you'll never be out of work. Yeah. Take me back in time to 1999, Fredonia, New York, right across the street from where the Flaming Lips were recording the soft bulletin. You were recording an album called Something Like Tragedy, a four-track recording. For anybody that's not uh, over 30, you might remember the 90s and what we called a four-track recorder, which is what everybody did on. Some of the biggest hits of the 80s were recorded on four-track and then mastered and then played on the radio. Hollow Notes, for example. I loved that Taz Cam. That opening track. That opening track. So I have to take you back because it wasn't actually for Daniel where I wrote that record. Two. 
that's how we ended up going down to Mexico. It was to, Wes and I were supposed to go down there and secure a place to live. And then we were all going to live fulfilling our dreams of art. And that's how, like Wes and I would play music. Mike was going to take photos. Sarah was going to do her drawings and paintings. Wes and I ended up finding a place to stay. We were playing in guitar in a plaza down there. And, and one uh, dude, Alejandro, he, he passed by and uh, was super intrigued <laughs> and ended up hanging out with us. We let him play some song, a song on guitar, and, and he said, come with me, come with me, you know. So we went, and he took us to his old school where he was friends with the principal who spoke English because we didn't speak Spanish, stupidly. And uh, he basically said, you know, he wants you to stay at the, his father's house and... Uh, and we said, cool. <laughs> and so some of the songs on Something Like Tragedy were actually worked on during this time period while you were in Mexico. Yeah. And we, were, so we were both writing heavily. You get back to the States. You yeah. record Something Like Tragedy. Yeah. And uh, Half in Portland, half in Washington, D.C., and in Greenbelt, Maryland. Wes, basically, when we got back to Portland, Wes was like, I'm going to make a movie with Jesse Stratton. The Pentagon. Yeah. Where is a copy of that? God, who knows? I know they're out there. They gotta be oh, out there. Oh, I wish there. I had one. So they go to do the movie. I decide I'm gonna move out there too, cause they're my best, my best bros. And know? the rent is cheap in Fredonia. Well, yeah, we'll just be for Fredonia, man. Yeah. We're living in D.C., and that's where I finished something like tragedy. I thought D.C. was after Fredonia. Nah, I finished all the songs in Greenbelt, Maryland, and uh, we'd go visit Westfield, our original hometown where we graduated high school. Which is where I, really where my music began was with my high school uh, music teacher, Kent Knappenberger. Shout out. Shout out. He was the inaugural Grammy winner for the first ever um, music educator Grammy out of the entire country. You know, what do you remember? 6,000 entries he oh, won. Yeah, I remember I mean, that. Holy shit. At the time. But what do you remember about the tunings you were using on some of those songs? Really out there. I made really them up. eccentric. So I, I started listening to... Well, I had always been into open tunings thanks to Led Zeppelin and Jimmy Page. But you don't do standard blues open tunings. I started off with open G and open D thanks to Led Zeppelin three. You know, when I was still a sophomore in high school, I had got in a tab book, and I started learning how to play some Zeppelin songs. And that introduced me to alternate tunings, and then I couldn't get enough of them. And then I discovered Nick Drake, and I realized quickly that I could just make up my own tunings, which is what I did. I'd just start detuning one string, and then finding an open chord that I thought sounded pretty or interesting. I don't even know what they are. I have a notebook where I'd written down what the songs were recorded in. I think it's in my studio somewhere, hopefully. <laughs> but um, I just started composing on top of those al alternate tunings. I just was writing the things that came into my mind. A lot of it, I was pretty a pretty insecure person for a lot of my life. Like I couldn't play with, with anyone other than Wes. The thought of playing in a band terrified me. And then 
later the practical realizations of writing songs in alternate tunings kind of said, well, you're just going to play solo for the rest of your life. It gave you this you know? identity. It gave me an identity, yeah. That but nobody else had. And lyrically, I don't know. I mean, Can they, I... they were all about me and my relationship to the world. But I don't know. E-Train, if you want to talk about music, I would say that was probably... Do, I mean, you, do you feel in, like I in do? my in looking back, that was one of the most magical times of my life. I felt like the songs were falling into my lap. This record, it just keeps getting better for me with time. It still blows me away today. I can't imagine being 18 and writing this big of a record. I mean, uh, the songs I wrote when I was 18, you know, just the most cheese ball stuff you could ever imagine. But I'm going to hit you with a little medley here of something like Tragedy Tunes. So...
at your young years. How old were you when you did that record? 18. I mean, come on. Um, yeah, I don't know. I had, like many people when they're 18, a lot of confused ideas about their own self-identity in Before relation to girls, in relation to the world and to their friends or to their family or whoever, you know, like, I don't know. And, and also, I think, I just thought it was funny. <laughs> like, something like tragedy. I mean, you really, you just have comedy or you have tragedy. And to have something like a tragedy, I mean, what the fuck is that? <laughs> to me, it always kind of described the record, you know? Because it is, you know, yeah. Yeah, but you're falling short of calling it tragic. I mean, it's, you know, just something like tragedy. It's pretty yeah. awesome, Next, we talk about Tristram Slumber. It was a project conceived by Jesse Stratton. Shout out. And uh, he was writing a ton of poetry and screenwriting. Voluminous. I mean, yeah, just nonstop. So he was going to school Catholic at University. Catholic University of America. And uh, every night, and meanwhile, I'm just sitting at home playing guitar. Every night he'd come home and be like, okay, are, are you ready? You want to do, <clears throat> can we keep working on this project? I'd be like, yeah, what, what are we doing? And he'd describe the scene. And I would either write something right on the spot or I'd incorporate something that I had and like bend it around and modify it. I mean, looking back on that, I don't know how I recorded that shit because... Um, also on four track. On four track, yeah. And then a live fucking bounce down. Holy shit! It was like two thirty-minute sessions of Hands running faders. faders. You need two people. Dude, it was it was intense. But there were some magical moments on that record for sure. In Are, fact, I'm gonna play you some after we're done with this.
some of the most avant-garde guitar composition that has ever been known to man. I mean, it, it's beautiful, and it's it's so tailor-made for this project. And when you combine the fact that 20 years ago, they, these two guys did this on a four-track instead of, like, two months or whatever. I mean, Jesse Stratton had all of this written. He had it all in his head, like a Kubrick movie. And even back then, 20 years ago, he was like this level 11 wizard, you know? And even in my own years that have gotten older, I just have a passing knowledge of stuff like that. But he was a master. Dude, there's, I mean somehow some way he would also do uh sound uh montages from like whip you know free sound bites we'd we'd orchestrate this fucking scene whether it be a cafe or a bar scene or like so, uh, someone walking through the desert so we'd have boot print basically doing post audio yeah like post audio but live so well, he'd do that, but we would record it live. It wasn't like we're going back after the fact and inserting all the shit. That's really it impressive. It was part of the piece as we're recording it. Amazing. And uh, sometimes, yeah, like the guitar interludes lasted a bit too long because I had a composition that was I had set, and like maybe there's a lull in the lyrics or in the song, but good for better for me because then hey you get to listen to the guitar you know like but and that that project i have no idea how it fucking came about and was completed it's all kind of a blur but it, i just remember like a month and a half straight of him coming home be like okay you, you want to do some more and we'd record till like five in the morning the every night of inspiration dude yeah when you're young. The things you do when you're 19 and yeah. 20. Hey. Hey, wake up, dude. Huh? Hey, man. Wake up. What? You been up all night? Yeah. Listen, I think I'm gonna go see her. Just out of the blue? Yeah. Hmm. It's a long drive. I can handle it. I'll see you in a few days. All right, man. Be careful. stuck in your cars right now. Keep your dials locked in on the WROC. Sound of the Oh my God, what are you doing here? I missed you. Oh, I missed you too. Playground. Come on. No way. You're not getting me on that thing. Come on, silly. You're amazing.
again, I wish I could play this whole thing, but it, you know, I've got to choose a couple of clips here. So this is what I'm choosing. And, uh, yeah. Hey. Hey, you. <laughs> you passed out? Hey, come on, get up a second. Wake up. Sit up. Look at me. Open open your eyes. Did, did you take these? just wish I could have appreciated this a little more at the time. It didn't make any sense to me then, but now it makes all the sense in the world. Stratton as a level 11 wizard, even 20 years ago, whereas now I'm maybe, I'm still a level zero wizard, but I have more of a passing knowledge of those kinds of elements within story and just in life in general, this reality, the spiritual quest for enlightenment, the downfall of man, you know, like uh, Mark Bolin. Mark Bolin was obsessed with Pan, Pan's labyrinth. Pan was always found in the darkest, coolest part of the forest and would come out to, you know, inspire song and poet alike, you know. Now, that's what I see now when I look at this. I see Mark Bolin talking about Pan and Jesse Stratton, and uh, I just didn't know any of that stuff back then. I wish I would have, but what a fucking epic, ambitious record. He was... He had a whole persona that had been around a few years, and he brought it back in, like, D&D chat rooms, right? So he's all, like, right, like, the stranger walks through the tavern door, enters in, and the the wind is blowing against his hair, and then other people in the chat room are like, holy shit, is that whatever his character's name was, I forget. And so he was reuniting with the people. I mean, dude, I watched the dude like type a fucking sex scene with a stranger in a chat room that's a writer dude like improv writing that's fucking incredible oh yeah for sure i cannot believe the friends that i grew up with when i was young 
How much when coffee I was in middle did you school and high school? We drank a ton of coffee. Wes and Jesse, uh, typical high school. Our whole group of friends, you know, like in that small little town in western New York, like we uh, had nothing but our imaginations and exploring our various talents to fucking go by, and somehow we all ended up together and. Is pretty uh, influential. Well, it's been my pleasure having you on the podcast today, Seth. Thanks, Seth uh, Gibson, check him out. The Smokes, Hunter Amps, Chicken Shift. 525 Records. 525 Records. Shout out Cesar if you hear this, man. Call me. this far thank you for listening to the 525 records podcast i hope you have a great week we'll do it again next week more awesome music 525 records listener powered